I like that video because it takes the issue of the sanctity of life and gives us a full or fuller, robust, God-fueled vision of what the sanctity of life is really all about. You know, each January, in memory of, of the Roe versus Wade decision, the nation observes a day that was set aside initially by, I think, President Ronald Reagan to acknowledge the sanctity of life. Sanctity of life. It's a sensitive topic. It's a hard topic to talk about. And as I preach today, I'm aware, I am aware that since 1973, about 60 million babies have been aborted. And I'm also aware that about one in three women have had an abortion. And so realize, too, that there are women here today who have personal ties to this issue and men who have consented or coerced maybe women towards abortion as well who may be here with us. Today is not about condemning. Today is about hope and freedom. The gospel offers you and all of us really. For all of us have had some sins we have committed against humanity that is made in the image of God and the dignity of humans made in the image of God. There is hope for all of us today. And yet, I am aware also that to be Christian To be a follower, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be one, is to be those who speak for the the sanctity and the dignity of human life. Russell Moore in his great book that came out a few years ago, um, I think it's right to be as emphatic as he was in his great book. It was called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. When he said this, a Christianity that doesn't prophetically speak for human dignity is a Christianity that has lost anything distinctive to say. It's pretty emphatic. I think he's right. I agree. We have to be a people that speak out for human dignity, life. And it is actually at the core of the gospel message. As Jesus Christ himself became a human, didn't he? He became a human, took on a human body, and redeemed humanity, soul and body. And not only that, he is the giver of human life, but also the creator of human life. But today my hope is that we will catch a vision for a a pro-life vision that is even bigger than the abortion tragedy. It's not less than that, but to be pro-life is even uh, much more. Can I say a little prayer for us? Would you bow with me? Lord, guide and direct us today. Lead our thoughts. Lead us as we open your word. Uh, Lead us towards a vision that will be uh, your vision for life. Encourage us, comfort us, convict us, challenge us. Today we pray in Christ's name, amen. As I said, I want to lay out for us today a vision for us, God's vision for humanity, that all life is sacred, And so even as we saw in our our, our video, pro-life issues are related to how we respond to poverty issues, how we respond to immigration issues, how we respond to the baby in the womb, how we respond to those with unique disabilities, how we respond to the marginalized, the outcasts, the vulnerable, the least of these as Jesus called them, to be whole life pro-life whole life, pro-life. That is our call. 
as, as Christians, as humans, as, as creatures. Creatures. We are creatures. From our very conception, and we are under the developing and caring hand of our maker. That's what it means to be a creature made by someone. We're contingent from the womb, from birth, at the mother's breast, and through really all of life. We're contingent, dependent on God. And God's unique image has been placed on humanity, giving us a value and a dignity far above any other made thing. Any other made thing. And yet humanity in every era and place wages war on the image of God. That's what we do. That's what we do as humans. We wage a war against that image. So this morning we're going to look at three unique truths that are going to help us understand why. Why? Why is this so prevalent? Why is every age, for all our progress we have in humanity and think we've come so much farther than our ancestors, why are the same issues still here? So grab your outline, have your Bibles open. It's a little bit different this morning. We're jumping around this morning, uh, not landing in just one passage like we normally do each week. We're jumping around today to look at these three truths to help us understand this unique situation. And, and here's our first one. We've already started talking about it. The image of God is what makes humanity uniquely valuable. The image of God. You and I, we need a theological vision for what human beings are. Or you might say a God-centered vision or God's vision for what human beings are. Without that, there really is no hope. There's nothing to ground our understanding of what humans are or ground our understanding of humanity in. There isn't. And the question we should ask ourselves to help is, as you heard in the video, who is our neighbor? As Christ said, Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is our neighbor? Has Jesus called us to love our neighbor? Is the fetus my neighbor? Is the immigrant my neighbor? Is the Muslim my neighbor? Is the lady who stands in the corner of 99 and Ivy who stands there talking to herself daily? You know who she is. Is she my neighbor? If we have a theological vision for what humanity is made in God's image and worthy of honor and, and dignity, just because of that, we'll have consciences and hearts that are softened towards all these dilemmas and, and issues or, or sin, you might call them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we will agree on the solutions all the time. We will not. Or that we must agree on the solutions all the time. We do not have to in the church. Or that we will always agree with one political party's solution all the time. We may not. And you don't have to. But we can at least agree that wherever we're coming from in this room, we can agree that we both care for the human. And whatever situation arises, whatever dilemma whatever situation we're trying to address, because they are made in God's image. That's it. We can agree on that. It's the classic passage we go to a lot because it, it is foundational and it is 
it, it was, if it was the only passage actually we even had on human dignity, we'd still be able to have a really robust whole life, pro-life message. Turn to Genesis 1 if you have your Bible, or you'll see it coming up behind me. But if you got it, I'd like you to open it too to see your own copy and you'll know that what I say isn't just on the slide, but it's also in the book you have, God's Word. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, it's another word we're going to talk about, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. From day one, Genesis says, God says, we as human beings have been made unique amongst all creation. Everything that exists, humanity is unique. It's this mysterious thing called the image of God that God only gave to humans. Uh, Animals don't have this. Angels don't have this. The mountains, rivers, and trees, and valleys don't have this. Only humans have this unique image. It's what sets us apart from all other creatures. There's a stamp, you might say, an imprint, you might say. Uh, There's a fingerprint on the front of your worship folder in our logo today that gives us this unique, special relationship with God. You have it if you're breathing here today. That's all of us, I think. Yes, we're good. It's all of us. You have it. You have that image. And we can't really go into really immense detail over this image today, although it's related to a few things. Here's some of them. It's related to our ability as humans to morally think through things, ethically reason and have thoughts about right and wrong and come to conclusions. It's based in our desires to mold and shape and make things. That's part of the image too. It's, it's based on the fact that we're relational beings as the Trinity is and always has been. It's based on all those things being made in God's image as He is. And we as this unique, dignified creation, we're given the responsibility to rule over, to govern over the world and reflect and mirror God, image God and His holy character. You think, yes, sin has come into the world. Yes, it has stained this image. Yes, it has marred this image, but it hasn't totally removed it from us. We may no longer be worthy to carry this image, but we still have worth. I read that this week. I'll say it again. We may no longer be worthy to carry this image because of our sinful state, but we still have worth and value just because we're human just because you're human. Genesis 1 tells us that people have value primarily just because they are human and made by God. When our world, so what happens then as we think about when our world loses that truth, when we disconnect from the supernatural, when we disconnect from the idea that I have been made, I am contingent, I have a creator who's given me worth, what do we do? We come up with all kinds of different ways to measure the value of a human. What are some? Uh, Productivity. How much are you producing? 
That equals your worth. Or usefulness, how useful, utility, how useful are you? However, that's defined by whoever is in power and authority. Your wealth, your good looks, skin color, nation of origin, our health, all these things then, once we detach from a God vision of us being made in God's image, all of these things at different times rise to the surface of how we then value human life. And so if that's the case, if we define our worth under these categories, whether it's your bank account, your productivity, your health, what happens when they fade? What happens when they disappear? Do you become less human? Do you become less valuable to God or others around you? What happens? What if you were born even without full health? What if you came into this world even from your very conception without full health? Does that make you less valuable? This week we had two different friends, two different couples of, uh, that we know, dear friends, both couples. This last week actually um, had two very different babies. The first one is a couple we've known for a long time and they've been wanting a child for a long time and they finally are having a child and this baby was born, I think it was Friday, absolutely healthy, happy, both mother and baby. What, a baby that you would call absolutely normal by any standard. This baby was born into the world and we are absolutely overjoyed and excited for those friends that had uh, that baby this week. It's been a long time coming and she's finally had a healthy baby. That was the one. There's another couple we know this week. It's a different story. I think their baby was born on Tuesday, earlier in the week. And she was born, uh, as I'll tell you in a minute, but actually months before her parents knew she might not live, even a moment. She might live and pass away. They knew as they went into ultrasounds early on that she had, I guess, about half of a heart. Very severe heart defects. She was born this week too. And instantly whisked away from her mother and taken to, to, to test and to look at and evaluate. She's already in her first couple of days had open heart surgery. She's surviving. She's okay right now. But she's got at least three or four, I think, other heart surgeries ahead of her and will have to have a heart transplant to live someday. Some would argue that the first baby has more, valuable, has more value, will be more productive, has a better chance at life, will definitely be less expensive. And Genesis 1 says, God says their value is in the fact that both bear the same image. Both bear the same image. The image of a loving God. A God who loves his humans just because he made them. Both of those babies. There's an absolute danger in our world that we're all tempted to at different times to believe that our ultimate worth comes from anything else other than the image of God. He says we're valuable and so we are. Both those babies have value in God's eyes. Yes, one is going to cost more. Yes, one is going to probably cause more emotional anguish, anguish to those parents. 
but neither is less valuable in God's eyes. And I know in those parents' eyes too. Well, speaking of that danger though of detaching from the image of God, his name was Helmut Thielich. He was a German. He said this. He went through World War II. He said this. Once a man ceases to recognize the infinite value of the human soul, then all he can recognize is that the man is uh, something to be used. But then he'll also have to go further and recognize that some men can no longer be utilized and he arrives at the concept that there's some lives that have no value at all. He lived through World War II. He lived through the Third Reich. He watched Hitler as a Christian and spoke out against him. You know, the Third Reich had a phrase they would use. Leiden uns vertis Leiden. You know what it means? Life unworthy of life. Think about that. Life unworthy of life. Of life. What do we have when we take away the image of God? No more value than matter. No more value than an animal. We're just matter, as Helmut says there, to be used. And when we become useless, what do we do? We're discarded if that's where our value lies. No more value in our usefulness according to whoever or whatever, whoever is in power at that time decides. But not so. Genesis 1 says something different. We are made, you are made in God's image. That means you are special. It means you are valuable. It means that he cares about you in ways that he doesn't care about the rest of creation. He cares about all of it, but you are very good. Creation's good. You are very good. God loves you. Not only were we made in his image, Genesis 1 passage says we're also, as humans, given authority by God to govern, to oversee the earth. The scripture said have dominion was the word God used. To oversee it, to build it up, to to cultivate it, to to care for it, to govern it, build communities and culture as we image God. And isn't that what humanity has been doing forever? That's what that means. Every place where there's been humans all along the earth over all history, we build up culture, don't we? And we build things, we make things, and we govern, and we oversee his creation. We have real purpose too. So not only are we made in God's image, we have a purpose too to oversee this creation. I love how David says it in Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you, you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've crowned him with glory and honor, David writes. Dominion, God calls it in Genesis. This makes humanity gloriously unique, too, and gloriously integral to God's plan. We are, you are, God's king and queen representatives on earth. That's what that means. You've been given glory and honor. Every human on this planet bears that unique image, and that should drive us as we live, as we love, as we minister, as we care. It should drive us to be a people who speak up, who have voices, and go to action for the voiceless, for life, for dignity, for humanity. Let's take a tough topic, for example. Let's take immigration as an example. We may not all agree on how to handle immigration. 
That's the understatement, right? <laughs> and I hope you don't go away today and say, well, you're Pastor Jeff. He said, open borders, that's the way to go. I know, I know somebody's going to go out here today saying that because I mentioned immigration. Don't hear that. But hear this at least today. We may not all agree on how to handle immigration, how to balance compassion with border security, how to ba- uh, balance caring for people and caring for our security. We don't have to agree on policy in the church. We don't have to. But I can tell you this. Whether you're from the U.S. or North Korea or Africa or El Salvador or Haiti, we have value in God's eyes. We do. You're made in God's image. And we deserve common human respect because of that. I've been to Haiti. There are beautiful people there, brothers and sisters in Christ, with great joy through their suffering. And their value is not based on their GDP. It's not. It's based on the image of God. We have to be a people. Wherever you come from, whatever political party you're from, whatever policy you're behind, we have to be a people whose theological vision comes before our public policy vision as Christians. We have to. That's what's got to drive us. We've got to. Because we're made in God's image. That's why. Because we're made in that image. But this image also makes us unique in another way too. It makes us unique as targets. That's our second point. The image of God makes humanity a unique target, too. God's kingdom is centered on humanity. Doesn't mean, I'm not saying that we are more important than God, but the world that God has made, his, his kingdom is centered on humanity. God's love is uniquely centered on humanity. And so what that means then is that you and I we become unique targets. You have a target on your head. Did you realize that? You have a target on your back. Did you realize that? Just because you're human. We've become unique targets of God's enemies because he made you, because he cares for you, because we're the only thing that image him. We're at the center, if you knew it or not, you and I, we're at the center of a battle, a battle between two kingdoms. And that's why in every era from the Garden of Eden, there have been unique assaults on human dignity and worth. That's why we're uniquely targeted. Here's more from Russell Moore in his Onward book. He says this, The Christian accounting of humanity teaches that at some point in our primal past, he's speaking of the Garden of Eden, humanity came into contact with a dark, mysterious, personal reality that we know as Satan, that was wild, intelligent, powerful, and in a state of insurrection, that's rebellion, against the Creator, these forces seem to have a special interest in humanity in reframing how we should see ourselves. There's been a dark force at work, in other words, is what he's saying, that's been in rebellion ever since, and we're at the center of that, and they want to distort how we view each other and other humans. That's their mission. That's their goal. It's a war of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God with his image-bearing citizens, it's you and I, and the kingdom of Satan 
who's been in, in, in insurrection against God from the very beginning. It's, it's a warfare over humanity. A spiritual battle, and we're right at the center of it. That feels good today, doesn't it? Just think about it. Think about the Old Testament story for a minute. Let's think about how quickly did that devolve? How quickly did that thing take a nosedive right at Genesis 3? Take a look at this slide coming up here. Just a quick kind of run through. We, get, we have Genesis 3. I, I think you guys can see that, yeah? Genesis 3, we get there. We get the lies of the devil in the garden. He comes and attacks humanity by lying to them, to, by lying about God. He is there. Chapter 4, we have the first murder. Cain kills Abel. There's a connection. We get to chapter 6 of Genesis. Noah's time on earth. There's evil. There's corruption. Humanity is distorted. They are destroying each other. There's a flood. Genesis 9, after the flood, the first warning of capital, capital punishment against bloodshed. If you shed man's blood, so shall your blood be shed. Leviticus 20, we get there. The Israelites have to be warned of the Canaanites and their idolatry because they're sacrificing babies to their idols. We get to Exodus. Pharaoh seeks to annihilate God's people, the Jews. There's the battle. If the Jews can be snuffed out, no Messiah, right? Pharaoh, unknowingly even, is part of that cosmic big battle as he seeks to destroy Israel. And we get to Matthew 2. And there's another Pharaoh, a Herod, who seeks to kill the prophesied Messiah by killing the firstborn boys in Bethlehem. It's all all throughout the story. Do you see it there? The destruction of humanity, the degrading of humanity, the discarding of human life. And it's been indicative of the battle of kingdoms. Spiritual kingdoms played out in earthly kingdoms and then played out in individual lives like people like you and I. These aren't just general symptoms of a larger issue of sin. They are that, but it's also a dark, anti-gospel, anti-Christ, you might even call it, anti-humanity spirit that's raging against this world and against the work of Jesus Christ. It's raging. Take a look at a few verses just to show that I'm not just making this stuff up that speak of this cosmic spiritual battle. 1 John 2.18 Children, John said, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now even many Antichrists, so Antichrist against Christ have come. Therefore we know it's the last hour. And John goes on in chapter 3, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's that kingdom battle. There's that cosmic battle from the beginning they've been against. And yet Christ has come to defeat the devil. There's a real spirit of antichrist in this world. Not just as we might say an individual, an antichrist, but there's a spirit of antichrist in this world and it hates humanity. And its ringleader is Satan. That's real. And he's wanted to destroy us ever since he entered the garden. And ever since the prophesied Messiah was prophesied to crush his head. Speaking to the Pharisees, John and John 8, Jesus spoke to them again as we look at this 
spirit that's been in the world. He says, you are of your father the devil, he said to them, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. There it is. It does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's the lie he's been telling us and trying to tell humanity forever, that humans don't matter. And our value should be based on something else other than just the image of God. Clearly there, the destruction of Christ is tied to the actions of people and to their father, Satan, as Jesus brings them together. In every age, every age, every era, there has been this clash between Christ and the powerful in this world. It was right there in his life. It's still going on. A spiritual battle that we find ourselves in the middle of now as unique targets. Remember that. Unique targets. And so, you and I need a unique answer to finish with this morning. We're uniquely made in God's image, which makes us a unique target. And so the gospel then is the unique whole life, pro-life, really only answer we have to this. The unique whole life, pro-life answer. The world defines worth by power and influence and wealth and position and status and using these means to, to overcome, to be victorious. Is it any surprise that the message of Jesus, who identify with the weak, the sinners, the vulnerable, the ill, the outcasts, would overcome the world not by his power, but by his blood? Think about that. How upside down was the victory of Jesus compared to how our world describes victory. Jesus said it himself, even the Son of Man, Matthew 20, 28, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to redeem. He came to save. He came to ransom humans. Humans like us. And as a human... Jesus is human. He became human, but think about that. He still is human. As human, he cares about the physical world too. He took on a body. He made it. He loves humanity. He died for humanity. But he died to save us both body and soul. Sometimes we focus here and we forget that he also died. We're going to have resurrected bodies someday. He'll redeem the physical stuff too. He died to save both body and soul. And sometimes those aches and pains you feel, there will be a day when they are gone forever. And you will never feel them again. Or illness, or sadness, or sorrow, or death. He'll redeem the physical and the spiritual. And he has both body and soul. For sins done in real physical bodies with real hearts and wills and souls, and many times those sins we've committed are against others with real bodies and hearts and souls. Only the gospel addresses both like this. The gospel of Jesus Christ redeems the physical and the spiritual. It's the only place we find it. So it means both matter. What we do with our bodies matter and other people's, and what we do with our hearts, wills, and souls, they all matter. And only the gospel redeems both. And saves both. Only the gospel addresses both the physical assault on human life 
and the spiritual devastation and alienation from God those sins cause us. So, we should combat sanctity of life issues on all fronts. Laws against abortion? Yes. Fair and safe immigration policy? Yes, if we can ever get there. Befriending the poor just for the sake of their humanity? Yes. But even the best laws won't solve everything because it's a much deeper problem, isn't it? And there's no perfect policy really for anything except the gospel. I guess you could say that's the one policy. Because we can't fight a culture of death as Pope John Paul II called it just in law books, because really the battle's being waged on people's hearts. That's really where the battle's fought, at a heart level. And only the good news of Jesus Christ can change hearts. Because here's, here's why. It's a message of grace and forgiveness. That's why. It sounds simple. It sounds trite. But that's really it. It changes hearts because it's a message of grace and forgiveness. You may be here today wondering if your abortion is the unforgivable sin. You may be here as a man today who in his early 20s coerced his pregnant girlfriend to have an abortion. You may have thoughts that run through your head, well, God can forgive sins, yes, but I don't think he can forgive this one. And I want to say to you today, that is a lie from the father of lies. Don't believe that. We are speaking of justice today for the unborn, but we're speaking of justification for you, salvation for you today, forgiveness for you today. When you unite to Christ in faith in Him, your judgment goes to Him. You are freed. And you're freed from condemnation from Him and the self-condemnation, which sometimes is even greater in our minds, isn't it? You're freed from that. Let that sin go. Repent and take it to Him. You're going to hear about heart ministry next week. If you've been through that, that's a ministry for you to hear about next week. Or if today you want, use that flyer in your worship folder and contact Canby Pregnancy Care Center. You are not beyond the grace of God. None of us are. You're not. And and really, that's the power of the gospel message because it is a message of grace. Saved by grace. Saved by grace. Jesus said, or, or Paul said in Ephesians, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. And here's the important part, so that none of us in this room can boast. No one can boast because you've been saved by grace. When you're saved by grace alone, no one can boast. What do you have, Paul says, another place that you have that you did not receive? So issues that come up. If you've been saved by grace, how can we feel superior to others? Or show preference to others based on other things? We've been saved by grace. Or show favoritism. We've been saved by grace. That's what grace does. Grace softens the human heart. You've been saved by grace. It softens the heart. It opens our eyes to the poor, 
to the unborn, to the ill, to the maimed, to the hurting, because that's spiritually really what each and every one of us look like to God when we come to Him. We've been saved by grace. And that's good news. Because that means all those other standards and measures the world uses, your productivity, your usefulness, your bank account, your good looks, your health, your skin color, all those things people use to have status and power, that's not how God works. That's not how God sees you. Let's close by looking at an example of Jesus Christ and His concern for the sanctity of life to close. I think it's going to encourage us. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John 8, verse 40. You, you can look at the Scripture. You can listen. I'm going to kind of tell it as a story. John 8, verse 40, the Gospel of John. Jesus was traveling with His disciples, and you probably have heard this story before. And I want you to picture that day. He's traveling his disciples. They're along the road. And the crowds of that day were big crowds. They were the overwhelming type of crowds that are bumping into you. You ever been in a place, I don't know, where it would be uh, a ball game or Disneyland or, or a, a state fair? You're somewhere where there's a lot of people, right? And you're just crammed in there. And it's just almost claustrophobic and hot. Or, and you just feel a little anxious. That's the kind of day they were having at Jesus' disciples. They were pressing in on all sides. And the disciples were probably even a bit frightened, I would say. There's crowds that can be so big that they're frightening. I've been caught in a couple before. It's not fun. And people were grabbing and they were yelling out, Jesus, Jesus, coming up into his face, standing right in front of him, heal me, Jesus, heal me. As they walked along and just probably couldn't even tell where most of the cries were coming from. It was that crowded. But there was one, there was one, and she was an outcast if there ever was one. She was an outcast if there ever was one. Here's a few reasons why at that time she would have been an outcast. First, I said she. She was a woman. That time would have been seen as somewhat of a second-class citizen. Second, this woman that John describes, she had been having a discharge of, of blood for 12 years years, which not only would have made her a woman, would have made her an unclean woman according to the Jewish customs, an untouchable. Well, here's the third one. The, the story goes on to say that the problem obviously was hor- horrible to her. She wanted help, and so she spent all of her money at doctor's offices. Some of you have been there, haven't you? Just trying to get an answer. Give me an answer for what's going on with me. I need an answer. She'd spent all her money, so now she's also poor. So she's a woman who's had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and she's also in, impoverished, in absolute poverty. You couldn't pick a better trifecta to, to make her, describe her as an absolute outcast. Can you picture her there? She's in that crowd, and she's following them along. She sees Christ. She sees the crowds. She's there with them, and she's behind, though. Why would somebody like that ever go up to Jesus' face front to front. She wouldn't do it. She knew her standing in the community. And so she's there and she's behind them and following them along and she's sneaking up through the crowd and probably ducking her way through legs and people and she reaches out the last minute and grabs his coat. You know the story. She gets the hem of it. She just barely gets it. Doesn't dare go look at him in the face. Doesn't dare go talk to him. Just gets her thumb and her finger probably on the coat and grabs it. And John records that she was instantly healed instantly 
healed immediately, and she knows it. And Jesus is in this crowd, right? And he could have just let her slip away, couldn't he have? He could have just kept on going. It was so crowded, nobody probably even knew she did it that day. He could have just let her slide off into history as a healed woman, and she would have shared her story with some people probably. But he stops. He says, who touched me? And Peter's like, "Uh, everyone's touching you, Lord, as Peter always does. (laughs) That's Peter's answer for you there. Everyone's touching you. Come on. But he, Jesus wanted to capture the moment. And he does. And she's absolutely terrified. She knows, I've been caught. I should never have done this. I should never should have come up behind him. I should have just went home when I thought about it. Why did I do this? Jesus says, who did it? Who's there? And she comes forward. And the people probably realize who she is. And they probably jump back. Whoa, it's her. The outcast, the unclean. And they back up. He could have let her slip away into obscurity, but he didn't. He stops. She tells him, she comes out in front of him, she says, it was me. Jesus brings her out from the hiddenness, from the darkness, from the outcast state she was in, and he brings her right out in front of everybody, out into the light, so everybody can see her, this unclean, this forgettable, this discard outcast. He brings her right out into the front, out into the light. And they probably jump back. And there he says to her, what does he say? Daughter. Daughter. Daughter, he says. Your faith has made you well. And her soul soared. Her heart leapt with joy. Because the king of the world took a throwaway, an outcast, a loser, an ugly, a sinner, and said, daughter. He called her daughter. The throwaways, the outcasts, the losers, the ugly, the sinners, you know what we are? We're sons and daughters of the king. That's who we are. You're a son of the king. You're a daughter of the king if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And Christ brings together humanity and deity. And he saves both body and soul. And that's the unique gospel message you and I need to be whole life, pro-life. We're made in God's image. Makes us a unique target. But is there any more unique message than that one? Christ redeems body and soul and sinners and steps out and says, daughter, son, you're mine. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today. I confess 